Hello, listeners. Uh, we're back. We're back. You're joining us for the second part of this very long in the editing exploration of Le Corbusier's Purest Villas. Yeah, uh, this was three hours long until we took the knife to it. Well, I mean, there's lots to talk about. Uh, before we begin, I want to say, I want to remind you, if you haven't already, have a look at our Patreon at patreon.com slash aboutbuildings. Full of full of quality stuff. Maybe there'll be two bonuses by the time it goes up. Yes, we've got lots of extra bonus content going up. Thank you so much to everyone who's signed up already. It's going brilliantly well, and we're very excited about the maybe new we, era. Maybe we've got dozens by this point. Yeah, I think that I'm sure there'll be dozens. So thanks very much, and if you haven't already, check it out at patreon.com slash about underscore buildings. So we've been building up to these two really big, to the big projects, the two big ones, uh, the Villas Stein and Savoie. So should we talk about Villa Stein, which is, we could talk about the client, I guess, couldn't we? Well, it's a slightly complicated set of clients, isn't it? I mean, ultimately, it's Gertrude Stein's brother who managed the business. Michael Stein. But um, there's various complicated steps before then. Yeah, him, his wife, and they're sort of third in them I mean what it's sort of a menage a trois isn't it or what's the arrangement between I, them I, I haven't have... really delved into it I, it was yeah. difficult enough to work out what's going on architecturally let alone <laughs> what's going on in their um, bedroom arrangements it's, an, um, it's, it's sort of ambiguous but it's so the brief is for it's this big house again in um, suburban Paris and there is a bedroom for there's like a master bedroom for the couple and then there's a sort of bedroom for the other woman and both of these are these these sorts of suites um, and the arrangement by floor is that the ground level floor is service the first floor is the sort of main set of public spaces of um, communal spaces the first floor is these two sort of bedroom suites and then the top floor is a roof garden and pavilions of various kinds does not the roof garden have a little granny flat in it or am i making that up oh it might do like yeah. a bedroom and a you know living room like a little suite yeah i'm not sure who that's for so actually i think there was uh, in some of the schemes i think there was one of those on top of um villa savoie well i think i'd like to start talking about the elevations the approach to it has this very classical quality there's a completely straight road which leads to it it's a fence Poor gatehouse. Um, and then the front elevation that you approach is a white rectangle. It has these two strip windows which run all the way across, which are, which reads as very narrow. It reads as sort of very white with these two very narrow strip windows. And then on the centre, uh, on the top floor, there's a cutout, which is the balcony. And a balcony which is pushing out of the front in the centre on the top floor which is the only thing interrupting this otherwise very sort of thick band of white concrete that's sitting at the top. And then um, the only place where the symmetry is disrupted is on the ground floor, where on the left there's a garage. Um, towards the right there is an entrance with this in, this really big wing-like canopy. And then sort of towards the left there's another entrance with a, a much smaller canopy expressed as a sort of cube stuck on the front. And when you come around... Th- the other side which faces the garden again you have two strip windows but this they're twice the height so they're like doubles and so the it has these two much stronger horizontal stripes and it's then cut away at ground and third floor level the ground level is recessed back it's been pushed back by half a bay at the top level there's a thin white strip which is the the surround of the balcony the two lateral walls which are the the side walls have been cut back by the same amount again and then on the left there is one of these big cutouts that we were talking about earlier where it's like a whole chunk of that cuboid has been removed and recessed in 
creating this suspended garden terrace within the plan and then protruding out of that is it, the sort of terrace continues out and then becomes a stairwell which which comes back across the front and leads down into the garden i think we already said something about the plan about what about the, the sort of disposition of the program i mean we could talk about the plans as well or so to the first order the plans are the same as the other ones which is that on the ground floor it's utility and cars the first floor is living space the second floor is rooms and then there's a pavilion on the roof after that it gets a bit more interesting because this is the one where the potential of the free plan is explored most thoroughly there's quite a lot of curves of different sorts I think you better describe them because I don't actually have a decent plan in front of me. Yeah, so on the ground floor, the there's a separation which is created by this free wandering wall which separates the entrance hall that you come into from a whole series of service, little pokey service rooms which are behind it. It sort of looks like a kind of drawn line. It kind of comes around. It has thickness in places. It curves in on itself. Um, it sort of juts out and makes these uh, sort of strong diagonal lines within the grid of columns and yeah that separates the hall which you come into from all of the utility spaces which you are at liberty to forget about so first of all there's a there's a cutout in the floor so that there is a there's a double height space which goes down into the the ground floor hall one side of that is a double curve and that's sort of towards the the side where you enter and then one of the other walls is also a kind of curving wall which is partly glass block i think the second floor is quite complicated and i'm not sure it's really within my power to describe it very effectively but one of the corridors for example is this strange sort of cigar shape in plan it's like two curving it's got a door at either end and then it just gets wider towards the middle and that's the corridor it feels like something that could be in strawberry hill <laughs> yeah and then on the top floor there you know uh so two-thirds of it is um a roof terrace there is a form which had appeared as the ramp on in the villa maya plan is a little sort of pavilion form in the middle of the roof terrace, which I, I don't actually really know what it's for, but um, it almost doesn't matter what that thing is. He would be forever putting weird things on the roof with varying degrees of success, some really brilliant through the rest of his career. So we'll have plenty of chance to talk about strange shapes on the roof. And the other two facades are rectangles with um, some strip windows in them, where that terrace is completely covered in wall on the other two sides to make the box. All of the plans are pretty interesting. There's some quite strange bits. Uh, one of the things is that on the first floor... So the columns, as you would expect according to his principles, are set back like a half bay from the facade. And on the north, um, the north facade, which is facing the way you come in, that creates this strange condition where there's this hole which has been cut through into the floor. There's a stairway. Then there's... The, Behind the hole cut into the floor, which is going through down into the ground floor entrance, there's this little half-bay corridor which runs all the way across. It's a corridor which is sort of about half the length of the whole, the whole facade, which runs all the way across and then to this one tiny little balcony looking out over the entrance. It's sort of cute, but it's... it's um, a bit Baroque. Uh, and then, yeah, as you'd expect, there are two staircases. There's the staircase you come in on but then there's a different staircase which takes you further up in the plan you sort of switch from one to the other on the first floor level from a more public one to a more private one this project it was developed and built fairly quickly yeah uh, than others but it went through a pretty radical development starting with something much more like the early ones we'd seen an arrangement of forms with a cascade of terraces going down in various stages into the garden which can be slightly seen folded into the cube and then with the last terrace jutting out the back. The next stage was largely the form that we see now, yeah. but with a much more conventional internal arrangements with all the walls being straight. So you still have the th sort of four terraces going down in stages from the roof yeah. and you have the similar, well, more or less exactly the same internal plan, but all the walls are straight. And then, at the last, in the last iteration, 
he introduced lots lots of curves and free curves into the plan, some of which with a sort of notion towards optimization of space, but mostly with a note towards making the views, particularly the views from the living room and the experience of walking around more interesting. So you, instead of walking through a linear corridor, you go through this sort of expanding and contracting. Instead of the view being composed completely of flat planes from the main living space, it becomes one of curves. Although in the, the key rooms are still defined almost entirely by flat orthogonal planes. So I think that they are these unbuilt versions of them are really strange. I think for me the thing which is strange about them is that they look a lot like stuff people were designing in the 80s that in some strange way the kind of Corbusier's cast-offs become, yeah, kind of that that sort of slightly weird hermetic postmodernism slash shading into deconstructivism. It's um, also the AXO projection. Yeah. It is the AXO projection, but like, look at this, this one where there's an in, there's an incredibly long linear terrace it's like a long kind of finger biscuit and then along the side it's got one two three four five six seven eight little perfectly square windows it looks like a john hayduck project doesn't it i mean it really doesn't look like anything corbusier ever built yeah this strange kind of awkwardness of these or this one where this another version of it there's one where the staircase between these terraces on three different levels meanders from one side to the other side of this otherwise essentially blank wall through these these sorts of openings and it's really playing with a kind of ruin language almost isn't it i mean it's not probably how he would have thought of it but it it, it looks very strongly like like a, a much later it's something where a lot more has been taken away and it's a funny that the transition between an open plan composed of components and uh, a plan composed of a box with cutouts what should be between it is a sort of ghost of a box with an enormous amount of cutouts. Yeah. You'd think that would be a transformation which is kind of, oh, I could put it all in a box. Yeah. But it's more that he thinks, oh, I could just have a little bit more framing wall here. I could just make it a little more symmetrical. I could just toughen up the form a little more. And then he just, yeah. in stages, brings it all in. He manages to to unify it all. Yeah, he's got a thing here where he's got three bays of strip windows and then he has these two kind of ghost bays of strip windows where they're just like the... We'll we'll see some of that later. But again, it's very, you know, this all feels very postmodern in a a sort of strange way. What does he do after he's put it all into a box and eaten it all up? He go around, goes around the plan with a felt-tip pen, drawing squiggles everywhere. <laughs> Between the the box as a unifier and a compressor and a, a an ordering process, and then that sort of allows all of this squiggly graphic language to. I don't know. The two things are in balance. Their intention. Key difficulty of box modern architecture is that it's boring, yeah. until you do something else with it, and you can do that highly broken down, pulled apart box arranging and void arranging or you can tighten it right up and people introduce various different things to make it exciting because everything's a rectangle you know once all of the plans and all of the elevations become rectangles i think that his fascination with painting and with graphics starts to come into the orthography and i think that part of what's going on in the potential of the free plan and the free facade is that he can start to design those things in the way that he might lay out a canvas or something else like that so that the these rules of these regulating lines which have always been there i think that they become quite interesting in the in the villa stein so on the um on the garden facade one of these golden proportion lines is the angle of the stair so it's something at one level which is a like flat graphic treatment, but then it's also sort of popped out and become something three-dimensional. Yeah. You can see there's a lot of development and that he is sort of playing around with these different elements until they form a kind of, particularly on the facade, until they form a kind of pictorial sort of graphic balance. So on the entrance facade, there's the two stripes and then between these three elements, the one above and then the two below on either side of it. And on the rear facade, he at some point realises that there's a way to balance the cutaway, which is the 
the roof terrace with a slight recession which is pushing the ground level back just a little bit from of the um, the two main stories could talk about these two essays quickly because i think that they are they sort of shed a little bit of light on um on various things so these two colin Rowe essays transparency literal and phenomenal which is um i think written with robert slutsky and then his early essay the mathematics of the ideal villa i mean the transparency essay is quite interesting because of the way in which it analyzes first painting and then architecture and it looks at the way in which transparency is used in cubism as well as grids actually it's sort of one of the things which is i think an interesting crossover he doesn't actually talk about Corbusier's painting at all in the essay, which is sort of interesting. Although it does about aux enfants. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? Maybe he just thought that connection was too obvious. I don't really know. But the, so he's... Paintings that he uses are better than the Corbusier's paintings. Yeah, yeah they definitely Every are. Every one yeah. of them. The distinction that Rowe makes in terms of transparency is between elements which are literally transparent, so which you're meant to see through, and... By phenomenal transparency, I think what he's talking even about... the literal one I think is quite complicated. But, yeah, um... well, I mean the the examples he gives makes it a little bit clearer. By phenomenal, I think what he means is a sort of transparency which is not literally there, but which you sort of understand implicitly, or which is connoted by other things in the visual field. So in the village on the garden elevation, there are these windows which are pushed right out to create a sort of a single continuous skin on the facade. But one of the things which he points out is that you're given to understand that there is a sort of line of force, which is the structural grid, which is just a little bit behind that back cantilevered rear elevation. And that's something which you understand because of the position both of the recessed ground floor and then also of these side walls of the roof terrace that you, that you sort of understand that there is a plane which is on that line, which is sitting just behind the plane of the actual first and second floor facade. Also that you can see things through the window that also hit that point, and that the depth is like that. He's sort of making the distinction between something like that and then the example of the Bauhaus, which is a building where there's a glass facade and you are literally meant to see through the glass facade and see that there's a sort of solid mass, which is a little bit behind it. The most famous of those, I think, would be um, the glass skyscraper proposal by Mies van der Rohe, which would then become his skin and bones. But here, it's a completely transparent skin around the concrete skyscraper. The phenomenal transparency that he's talking about... I mean, when he's talking about paintings, he seems to be making an allusion to ones that principally describe the object possibly even in three in a perspectival way and ones that describe the object it's a complicated comparison isn't it because one is one is limited to a plane and one makes perspectival image but the other one alludes to the basic form but also maybe the organizing principles of the form i don't know various attempts to strip away not just perspective or even just seeing it in the round in a cubist way. I think one of the things which is sort of interesting about this way of reading the building is that you're essentially reading it as a series of planes so that you read the plane of the facade, you read this sort of invisible but implied plane which is behind it. And that's sort of interesting. It's clear that that's also one of the ways in which Corbusier has thought about the building. And if you look at the way he draws his elevations, there tends to be sort of use of tone and colour and things to bring out the contrast of the different elements. The actual inside of the building is all perpendicular to those main facade planes, so that the experience as you enter is that the way you've been given to understand the organisation of the building from the outside is then turned at 90 degrees when you get onto the inside. It frames sort of the experience of the building as being quite fragmentary and without any... I mean, apart from the um, apart from the kind of... Uh, the way that you enter, the sort of view down the driveway at the beginning, from that point onwards, there's this sort of continuous succession of moments which don't reach any 
essential point of 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 sort of resolution or finish there's no there's no there's no sort of point of end to them i think that he has a quote about it in the other essay as well i think he also has this reading of he makes the comparison between um between the elevations these sort of planar elevations and um this leger painting where there are essentially three apparent planes in the painting kind of plane of the canvas there are like objects on top of it and then there are cutouts and things behind it and sort of simplistically the the garden facade reads very much like this there's this plane which is the plane of the main two floors there's a thing popping out of it but still on the same orientation which is the stairway and then there's this negative form which is the subtraction from the mass of the cuboid which is going in and then which actually it's a little bit more complicated than we said because it goes in and then there's a sort of another t- like terrace on the next floor up when then there's a sort of another bit which goes in even further and has a void above it and it's sort of slightly more more complex i'm looking at instead of an elevation a photograph taken at a slight angle from the garden down the garden path in a way, what seems a little arch in the description is quite clear, which is that the back of the house, if you look at the cutout bit, you can imagine the top floor is just projecting as just a sort of cantilevered floor, and that goes to the same plane as the windows. But the wall behind it is stepped back to the structural grid. And you can also see through the windows on the other side that the same thing is true there which gives the impression that the windows are slightly reminiscent of one of those glazed balconies. So the whole of that thing is like a balcony. But half of that facade is sunk back to the structural grid and half is projected forward. That implied rear plane is actually, you would almost have to say, not even really implied once you look at it from the side because you see this thick mass of the pier in the cutout. It's a bit difficult, I would imagine, to understand when you're listening. That that plane is very disrupted by the projecting cantilevered first floor terrace that comes out of the back. Something that is interesting is the amount that you do and don't see through the windows. Because some things are very up to the windows, and some points it's dark. And before I went to Villa Savoie, I was under the impression that the windows... This is a different thing... But it's a similar sort of thing. Went all the way round, even onto the courtyard. But they don't. But you get a bit of that thing that lots of different categories of things can be behind the window. Yeah, so there's a photo here where they have these blinds which are sort of coming down, mostly over half of the windows. Yeah, the vertical, these vertical elements which you see the side of are very thin. Like, they read as very thin. Because they are. He likes his thin concrete planes. Lots of thin planes, lots of perpendicular things. He also, in this one, is beginning to like the column with a gap at the top in the form of staircases. There are various things where the wall goes up to within sort of 150 of the ceiling and stops on the inside, which is a good old joke. It's a struggle to describe. You can either make it a complicated description or just sort of look at it. it, Like, a lot of this stuff are there's a bit more to it than just what you see but not a lot actually i think it boils down to he's created a box but it's a box that you can see into and what you see into is you see sort of more boxes uh more planes and voids but the exciting innovation of this project is that it's all within a single very strongly implied cube that that something which he's going to get more and more interested in is this play between things which seem to be thick and are actually thin and things which seem to be thin and are actually thick and that's sort of not quite developed here but it's it's starting to happen the things which you read as being continuous with one another and things which you read as yeah being stru- which different. which all plays into the thing of structural jokes so the column grid he actually does quite a lot to disguise having said that it was completely incidental and something which was he always does because it just isn't good having columns in rooms we've all worked in columns with room rooms with columns in them they're not good big offices have them unnecessary constraint on the room you would always take it away if you could 
And the way you take it away is you put it inside a wall. Or some of them have actually he's got rid of through various kind of cantilevers and so yeah i mean this this other essay the mathematics of the ideal villa which is a sort of famous late 40s essay does quite a lot of work to to explore the structural layout of the house and it's interesting because actually this he he makes the comparison between it and a villa by Palladio, which share the same essential bay pattern of one and a half, half, one and a half, half. And I mean, it's interesting that it's, yes, it's quite disguised in the Villa Stein. It's an interesting essay. And I think at the time it was sort of relatively iconoclastic to make these kind of literal, formal comparisons between architecture of such different eras especially one which in the case of Corbusier is so sort of valorized by the spirit of the new the modern the industrial this kind of break with the past part of the reason people are a bit touchy about it is because it was the criticism made while they were doing it by the old guards who were saying your modernistic is just another style and you're getting obsessed with its details at the expense of the fundamentals of good design and once you put once you say the mathematics in the palladian villa and the modernist villa are the same you're sort of saying one of the big differences could be described as style although i think you could also describe it as zeitgeist yeah there are obviously more differences than that and he has to do there are bits where it's a little bit tendentious, I think. For all that, very interesting and um, worth trying to get hold of, I think. He wants to make lots of other points, which I think are actually are things which we've even talked about in previous episodes, about a kind of continuity in terms of what the idea of the villa is, which I'm not sure we necessarily need to go into now. Yeah, I don't need to divide rich people's houses in suburbia. I mean, it looks nice. Nice big garage. There's a good photo of the boilers here. Yeah, I've got that one too. My one. Very big. They were very bad at that time. I don't know. There is something interesting. He often the, he often seems to have these sort of curved elements almost playing off against the column so that the column is sort of sitting in space and the sort of curved element will kind of approach it and then go away from it again. Bent by its gravity. You don't have to actually hide a column in a wall. You can hide it as a sculptural element against the wall. So in other ones, he has the the wall just behind the columns, which allows you to have a sort of tiny little space between the column line and the wall line, yeah. which gives you a place to put things, light and furniture. Yeah, it's hard without having seen this one. It's hard to know what it's actually like. The photos make it look like it has some interesting moments. I mean, I think that there's another sort of joke which he's getting in on, which is getting the column to come down on top of something. So there's a bit here where it sort of comes down and becomes part of the stair balustrade. Or the dividing bit of a cupboard. The articulation of those sorts of internal elements depends on you seeing the structural and non-structural elements as being different things, don't you? That in a way it's a little bit like yeah that's why that's why you hang the stair with a 150 mil gap from the ceiling to make that more emphatic it is a funny thing to do when you've made both things out of the same material when both are in situ concrete and are presented the same way you kind of have to make the joke because if you don't make the joke it will be structural <laughs> the columns i think become less and less present the more of these he does. I think he can ignore them, which is almost what he does in the early ones. Not quite, but you can just like be happy with them being there. Or you can kind of use them as jokes, which he sort of does here, or, or points of um, articulation. Um, or you can almost try and hide them all, or nearly hide them all. And then soon, this system is going to go all together, pretty much for good. This is definitely one of the things where the five points are just completely wrong, aren't they? Because far from the columns being something which you can put up and forget about, in fact, the whole game of the plan becomes what are we going to do with the columns? The columns become the not not the absolute determiner, but they become 
the kind of starting point for problem solving. They're the thing which the plan has to respond to. Yeah, but actually you can go back beyond that. The five points are the first ground rules of what to do in a building with a column grid. And then and then it's like, well, what does that really mean? Well, it means lots of games with columns, doesn't it? When you've got them in the middle of the bedroom. No one has put one down the middle of the marital bed as a sort of um, phallic gesture. But um, that's a movement. Yeah, I don't know. I think Eisenman's got pretty close in yeah. some of those houses. Um, I think if you were going to try and sum up what this particular period is about in a facade that garden facade of it seems to be the one which has everything going on or savoir yeah well should we talk about it i think the period is one of continuous flux i don't think there is a i think these are all ideas and in a way that's a resolution savoir is another resolution and neither of them are completely resolved but they both work very well as kind of crystallized ideas so should we talk about this one? It's it's super famous. You probably know what it looks like. But in case you don't... So, as you approach now, through a lovely glade of trees on the edge of a primary school, you see it, and the first facade you see actually isn't the famous one. Again, again, actually, the, so it's the garden facade is the famous one again. Well, I mean, it is a freestanding thing in the middle of a giant garden, so it's a bit academic. So it's um, it's much lower, it's smaller and simpler... It's a, it's a square plan. It has a colonnade on three sides of the ground floor. And the ground floor is a horseshoe. Yeah. And then that, that flattened against the wall. The first floor is the square with a strip of windows going all the way around it, resting on that colonnade on three sides. And on the top, there are some curves. Yeah. Which are sort of sitting on, on top. It has this feeling of being very wide very sort of low and very light box so on a side facade that strip of windows you have a colonnade of uh five columns you have a rectangle with a the rectangular slot and that slot except for the last bay of it is a void into a garden so it's quite funny you've got this box floating in the sky but you can see it's an empty box and when you look in you see that funny projected ramp the diagonal and you see off-centered curves on the roof and then if you get right round to the back or the car side you have this curved glass facade made of long thin vertical steel sticks with glass between them and a floating box on top and on top of that this funny irregular curved shaped roof and even there when you're looking through you can see right through the building because a lot of the box is just empty. The house is essentially on on the first floor, and it's got a little bit of utility stuff and a garage underneath, and it's got some a little bit of additional kind of leisure space on a second floor, but which is which is very sort of partial. But it's all basically on that big square floating first floor inside the box, and um, so the box is. Yeah, the box is partially empty. It hasn't been quite filled up with all of the rooms which have been put inside it. When you get in, you discover that inside the box is an L and an empty corner. The empty corner's big. One side of the L is a big living room with a really cool chromed light running down it and a sort of subdivision in the middle, which notionally is between dining and living. And then the other side has got the bedrooms and the kitchen bathrooms all that sort of thing and it's got a ramp going along it which goes up to the top can i do the walk in so you are driving in this is a country house for the weekend a weekender you've got your nice car your chauffeur is driving you from paris you arrive through parkland through a lovely copse of trees see this crisp white ufo hovering off the ground your driver takes you in under the colonnade and round the curving horseshoe to the front where you get out. Yeah. He then takes it round the rest of the courtyard into the garage tucked into one side of the horseshoe, yeah. where in fact he then goes into his living room, which is tucked round behind the garage. Yeah. Uh, and you go into the middle, the top of the horseshoe, and in there there's a funny concrete in situ table 
there's a really cool staircase, which is this sort of lovely freestanding, disconnected from the columns around it. There's sort of columns randomly, not randomly, but placed in a grid that doesn't seem to connect to the horseshoe very much. Yeah, and maybe just to say about the columns, un- unlike Stein, where they're on this quite irregular grid, which is compressed to create more space, in um, Villa Savoie, they're completely regular. It's a sort of isotropic. In this room at the front, you've got, if you go straight on, you go into a ramp. If you go left, you go up the stairs. And on the right, there's a, a, a table. I don't know what it was originally. Now it's the reception desk, but it was there all along. And you're all surrounded with glass. Yeah. It's a continuous curved glass wall. For the pur- we're going to be elegant, and for the purposes of today, walk up the ramp. When you're on the ramp, you're you're essentially right in the middle of the plan. That basically takes you up to the to the corner, so it doubles back yeah. to the corner, which divides the living quarters from all the sort of bedrooms and bathrooms and kitchens and things from the big living room. You're probably meant to understand the ramp as the main kind of ceremonial route, aren't you? In a sense that it naturally carries you towards the entrance to the big living dining space. Which is amazing. And it's got this huge sliding door, which you open and close with a big crank key. Um, It can't be pulled. There's a mechanism. And you insert a crank arm. And then you unlock it with a special key. And then you crank the crank and it slowly... moves this enormous and presumably prohibitively expensive plate glass window. Probably it's like 2.8 by 4 metres or something. Wow. I imagine it has quite a lot of momentum once it's moving. Uh, it moves very slowly because it's on a... It's, it's, um, yeah. yeah. I mean, because otherwise... It's screw-driven. Otherwise it would be very hard to move and once it started moving it would be very hard to stop it moving. Stop it smashing. <laughs> yeah. That glass wall then meets the end wall of this box. So on one side it's glazed and on the other side it's not glazed but it's still, the window system's still there. So there's the courtyard which has got another ramp in it which you look at... And you get this lovely sort of shape, which is a bit like that shadow thing I was talking about earlier. Yeah, where it has you... these sort of diagonal lines leading up. I don't really know how to describe it. And on the roof, there's more terrace, basically. And not, more no. solarium and things. Nice photos, all covered in snow. It's quite cold. <laughs> yeah, it's not really what it's made for, this kind of weather. The other famous thing is the bedroom with theatrical bathroom in it. So there's the large bedroom. I think... The uh, husband died, didn't he? Like, fairly shortly after it was built, and then it was inhabited by the wife for a long time, who spent most of her time sitting in the kitchen, and then would occasionally go to her bedroom with its huge... or with its sort of funny bath zone behind a little wall. Yeah, so it's almost like a kind of landscape of blue tiles. This yeah. It's open at both ends. It's got one of those, like, um, cherry things that you have in your Apollo rocket to stop you um, losing consciousness. <laughs> a compression, a it's compression a comp- couch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, a compression couch. It's got a, a bath, which is basically a cube. I mean, an oblong sunk into the ground um, with nice sharp edges to make you comfortable. Yeah, and then it's all sort of blue, these blue tiles. Blue. Very sort of swimming pool tile colour. I can't imagine the bath was very nice to use. And then on the other side, you've got the toilet. Oh, no, no, it's not. Sorry, it's a bidet, no toilet. Yes. wonder what they could be using that for. Yeah, it's the, it's a, that's a bit sad, isn't it? Because there's like a real, um, it's a real kind of sex kind of it, yeah, It's suite. a sex house, yeah. but I'm not sure how much actual sex went on in there. Oh, and then there's also this, the funny little house for the gardener as well, which is a kind of mini-me of it. Again, a box on sticks. With a Steinard one as well. It is an existential minimum house. Because they'd run out of space. They needed more space for their servants. I think there were only two live-in servants, who were the chauffeur and the gardener. I reckon that's because the others would probably come with them. This wasn't, where, this wasn't a permanent residence. This was a country retreat. It's sort of interesting, but it also it completely ridiculous, the whole ground floor idea. So the idea is, yeah, that the, that the curve of the recessed ground floor is literally the, the turning radius of the car. Yeah. But it's so tight. Yeah, they had an even tighter one before, 
Um, he basically made, he said the turning circle is whatever he decided the curve to be because he'd have tried out a few different curves. The curve of it, it's like a racing line, but obviously you need to drive about one mile an hour in there because you're so tight to the columns and you would end up demolishing the house. Yeah, if... how big, do you have a sense of how big the gap between the column and the glass, a fabulous expensive glass facade is? Well, it it varies, but it's like, I don't know, it's probably about th- sort of three... Three, three meters, meters? In, play, in 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 the pinch points. How yeah. wide is a normal car? I don't know, about two point something meters. <laughs> it's slight, although it reads as being um, kind of essentially this sort of symmetric thing. Actually, it's slightly different. The relationship of the columns to the facade is different on different facades. So on two sides, the columns actually are engaged with the wall. But at the front and back, it's pushed a little bit forward and back on two sides the cantilever only exists at the front and back which is the only place where the columns come inside the room Um, because it's also the place which only the front and back have continuous fenestration so I visited this about 12 years ago so I don't remember it all that well one of the things which I remember quite strongly is or sort of this kind of paradoxical but enjoyable sense of something which is meant to express these very machine age values, but which is in fact extremely handmade. And um, the kitchen counter, which is covered in all of these sort of white tiles, but which are actually all slightly irregular and have been very carefully grouted in. And um, and there's a huge know. chopping area. So there's a huge wooden counter, which you almost chop straight onto, which is lovely. The kitchen is the domestic heart, really. And then the tiles also become the sinks. The like tiles run down into the sinks. Um, the thing that Corb is doing a lot on the inside of buildings, aside from ramps and staircases, is views through. So we had in Stein these complicated views where you look from the big living room past a kind of column in the corner to this opening where there's a curve. There's only really one space that does that in this altogether more simple plan, which is in the main room, you've got this huge glass door looking out onto the ramp and the wall between the two sides of the ramp is also glazed which then also looks into a corridor with columns in it, which also goes in further to the living rooms. And then there's a funny reflection of doors around the central pier. So one's inside, one's outside. And then that happens again with the door, which is the main ceremonial circulation, and then the door to take the food out of the kitchen. Yeah. So there's a bit of that sort of play going on. I think, there would be, I think there's more of that in Villastein. But this one is more simple, and it ha- kind of has a clarity, which I think Villa Stein is a bit baroque on the interior, yeah. uh, and, and, pro- and isn't as tight. We haven't talked about colour. We tend to look at the buildings in black and white, but they have quite carefully chosen colour palettes, partly based on industrial materials, so brick and tile, and partly various semi-pastel-y semi sort of shades that he painted the walls blues in some places, reds, greys, and whites. He's a big fan of the feature wall. Yeah. All the sort of feature two walls, as we put yeah, it yeah, now. Yeah. Well, he is, you know, he's an interior designer, isn't he? And then um, a certain amount of, yeah, in-situ cast furniture to kind of control what's going on. He's got his Villelac table uh, projecting from a column, which is also actually present in La Roche and in Stein. So at some point in all these projects, there is a cantilevered concrete table which projects from a column um, and then has either a single foot or a V, something he rather likes. And there's also the in-situ cast concrete bookshelves and things. What's on the top floor? What's in these funny... So on the top floor, there's another terrace, but then there are also these irregular volumes. I mean, to be honest, nothing really. Walls... What, what There's a hole in the wall, a solarium. I think I think there may be a little bit of uh, yoldy English beachfront windbreak effect. Uh, I think a spot of alfresco sex makes sense. Yeah. You'd probably want a bit of a wall around, around that. Um, Keep the servants out of your hair. Yeah. Uh, sunbathing? I can't think of what else you'd do up there. 
This is an unfulfilled weekend shag pad, basically. Oh, it's sad, isn't it? <laughs> but quite, uh, yeah, rather sympathetically designed. There's I mean, no... I can see how it was meant to work. Where, yeah, where would you put the hot tub? Probably yeah. up there in the sort of there. round. Yeah. Yeah. So there, yeah, you have these um, this sort of collection of sort of curves and cutouts and different things. But it's a, it's a, that's a real bit of free plan, isn't it? And it's a sort of freestanding free plan rather than an enclosed yeah, it's, free it's plan. Yeah, it's all made of um, lightweight block work. Yeah, yeah. The construction photos are quite fun. You, there's um, there's a few of them in this book. There's one where the um, in the foreground there is an enormous pile of planks, which I guess is from all of the formwork. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure that formwork is being reused very much. Do you? Yeah, no, it doesn't look like it to me. They're all sort of spilling out from the top, from the first floor down onto Slightly the Slightly reminiscent of that famous picture of a train coming out of um, yeah. whatever station it is. Yeah, and then there's another one where, yeah, as you say, they are building all the block work and they're going to they're going to create all of these curves by very carefully um, I think rendering he must have looked the, um, at this stuff and later on in his career, he thought, perhaps it'd be all nicer if we didn't render it. It's rather murky, isn't it? Just having everything. Yeah. He he'd probably do it in stone, rough hewn stone. Mm, it's also about that kind of um, the sort of blasphemy of very expensive and very cheap things together. So like um, industrial ceramic block and then a bit of travertine or something. Yeah, yeah. No one ever, no one ever is brave enough to do Ravnica, gilded and connecting to marble on one side, undyed plastic on the other. <laughs> I think the problem is we've sort of said all the things about this one already, which is the big manoeuvre is putting it all in the box. And this is the box project. This is the most boxy of box projects. Yeah, this is the most boxy project. It's the most perfect five points project because there's a column grid. The grid is essentially regular, like the proportions of the column grid are the same as the proportions of the overall building, sort of square, square in square. The columns are pretty much everywhere he hasn't sort of deleted or engaged them very much but it is also a project with a lovely transparency it's just a different one it's yeah. one where this continuous band around the outside of a box which in elevation looks basically the same on all sides in real life becomes animated by the fact that sometimes it's going looking into a void and in that void there may be something there may be the ramp which is an altogether more exciting sort of proposition of something in the distance. And then some of it may be to this... It may be looking into a room which is completely glazed on the other wall, but glass isn't completely the same as nothing. And then on one side, you're looking into something which is very much like a solid building. Yeah, literal and phenomenal transparency is, is, uh, I think, is kind of more exciting in this one, actually, than just sort of having the the play of different planes. The play of different levels of um is it just air you've got a white box floating above ground is it just air in there is it a room which is so light that it that all you see is glass on the other side or is it a solid building which it is on one side and as you go around you also have how recessed is the bottom floor is it something which is which is really just a beast in the darkness or is it quite present as it is on the first elevation and it it sort of disappears and you would only become aware of that disappearance i think once you've gone in and come out again into the garden it also has a lovely relationship with trees he's always drawing trees in his elevations and sections and then you approach it through these trees and the trees are very vertical and very uh, irregular and it's very regular but also quite vertical and the ramp and the staircase are next to each other, so you've got this really good play of the sort of ter- different turns of vertical circulation. It's a very clear project. I think it deserves to be very famous. And this is the one he took on tour. I think one of the things which is quite successful, he's doing he's doing something extremely difficult, which is putting this really long, really thin ramp, which is essentially an obstacle, and banging it right into the middle of the plan, and managing to do that in a way where it doesn't feel completely mad or completely muck up your ability to move around and understand the relationship of different spaces. And making that making that actually work, I think, is quite a sort of feat of um, planning. Yeah. Because the because the ramp is actually, it's essentially like two thirds of the of the plan. Like it's two thirds of, of the depth length, of, of yeah. The, uh, yeah. Yeah. 
He does it in the same way that massive sweeping Baroque staircases work, which is you just make sure you've got tons of extra plan. The planning, it's amazing. By putting an incredibly loose plan into a completely crisp box and grid, suddenly it's crystallised. Everything makes sense. It's incredibly loose. There's very little there. But because it's in this really crisp box, which is the same on all sides almost, and because it's when you're in it, you're also in a in a grid of columns. Yeah. It becomes this crisp, tight, logical thing. Even though yeah, there's good. nothing, that's the, you know, it sort of melts into air. You know. Yeah, it is very loose. It look from the outside, it looks like it's floating. Yeah, because it's full of air. Yeah. <sighs> I haven't been to Stein, so I can't sort of advocate for it quite as much. No, I don't. Yeah. I don't know who... Does someone own it? I expect someone must do. I think someone owns it. I think someone probably lives in it or, like, visits it twice a year. Yeah. Do you think it's got, like, a fur coat room? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah, something like that. Lots of photos and lots of interesting development drawings. There's a... This um, Tim Benton book has got, like... The, yeah, it's quite interesting to see the development... It was only in quite a late iteration that it got as as wide as it did. It was previously a sort of three bay structure, and then it becomes a four bay, a four bay one later on. And I think that you can see it feels really sort of strange and and compressed in all of the earlier ones. Having an odd number of columns is really cool in, in terms of if you're thinking about it in classicism. Having a middle one. Having a middle column. The middle column enables the ramp to work. It enables lots of things to happen. Um, But it's got a very different sort of... um, If you want to get into magic and all that sort of mess, putting a column in the middle has a very different sort of magic proportion, doesn't it? Mm. To You can make a much stronger Palladian argument for Villa Stein. It's, It's playing around with much more conventional proportions. The other thing which disappears from the earlier versions is because the house is actually quite, you know, it's just, it's essentially all ordered on around this first floor. So in earlier versions, he has as in Villa Stein, a staircase which comes down from the first floor onto the ground floor, which is disengaged from the mass of the building. And he got rid of that, yeah. But it's, it becomes so much more exciting when... Because what it does is it just disengages the house from the ground visually completely. So it is just this floating box. It has this mystery. And the whole means of entry are shadowy. Particularly with this, this the ground floor is this kind of curve of glass... Um, curve of glass is like it's insubstantial yeah. and what does an opening mean in it it neither is a wall nor capable of bearing openings when it's curved and glass yeah well it's you, you get kind of reflection don't you you get sort of strange reflection distortion it's a different sort of dematerialization it's a different sort of um transparency isn't it it's a really interesting literal transparency Yes, because you're not meant to... Gosh, yeah, it had very big grounds to start with, didn't it? Huge, yeah. The estate and the two schools, that's all just taken out of the grounds. So there's a photo taken from underneath it. It looks like relatively soon after it had been completed, where it's all you can see all the gravel and you can see a few tyre tracks in it, but not very many. And then really, yeah, the parkland sweeping away behind it. Lots of newly planted trees. And this sort of hovering cuboid above it. So he released, in 1929, um, he released this thing called... What is it called? Is it called Compositions? Four Compositions. Yeah. It's partly why I, I sort of thought that we should frame the essay, the um, episode in this way, is that he, he presents, actually, a series of projects which are not necessarily in the order which they were commissioned or completed, but... Or even projects that actually exist. (laughs) But he he presents them as a sort of an order. So you have uh, Maison La Roche, this sort of assemblage of different forms, making a sort of irregular uh, plan form. There's, um, oh, that's the Villa Stein, which he presents as a completely blank cuboid. There is actually the Weisenhof building that we didn't really talk about, which he presents, I think, quite misleadingly as a sort of grid of columns with irregular forms within it. I think that's the Weisenhof building we did talk about. 
well, it's essentially a sort of imaginative version of one of them, but which he presents as a grid of columns with a sort of irregular form uh, within the columns, but not really affected by them. And then the fourth one is um, the Villa Savoie, so a square, but which is partly full and partly empty, where there's this square enclosure, which is partially full of architectural substance and partially left open but creating these sort of enclosed voids within it. it. Like, actually, the way he draws it doesn't look anything like the real plan of the... They're, they're sort of, yeah, they're kind of evocative diagrams. And maybe I'm reading too much into it, but my, my kind of reading of that is that that is meant in a way to present a sort of synthesis. That, I, that, in, the for, that in the fourth of those options, all of those things come together. That may be what he's saying in that moment... In reality, obviously, all of these things are more complicated than that. The tools of creating a facade, opening the facade, having an expansive form, architectural form, those are tools that he uses, all, not just he, those are fundamental properties of architecture. The, the interesting thing about the last one is it's the putting of your expansive building inside a box... Is, is the rarest and most considered or expressive thing. It's a very luxurious manoeuvre. He's not the first person to do it. It's, yeah. it's been done through history. But um, it's the most surprising one. And it is interesting. In a way, it's, it reminds me a little bit of the way Louis Kahn built, does buildings, that you have something which is a sort of outer, an outer form, and then you build a building which is a little bit less big than that and create these interesting interstitial spaces obviously when khan is doing it he sort of calls it in this very sort of tragic nostalgic way that he's um wrapping buildings in ruins or whatever which is something that corbusier would never talk about but it does seem like they are a similar sort of maneuver actually a relationship with although it's a nice inversion of the really classic trope of you've got a funny shaped site and you want a box in the middle of it and so you've got these strange bits of poche around it which you can reveal or not reveal there's a good plechnik one where he actually just has the box and then the weird spaces around it are kind of all open. What one's that? I can't remember. (laughs) Uh, I can remember the most interesting place in it by far is this strange lobby, which is a weird trapezoid because it's creating... Is it the library? It's not the Pegasus library, it's the other one. It's difficult, this building, isn't it? Because it's such a, it's such like a, a sort of monument in the whole history of architecture. It's more difficult to know. But it does, he does so many boss it. things in it. Yeah. It's really fun. Like it's good. So I've got this endless country park. What should I do? Make a little box and put all the things in it. Yeah, on sticks. <laughs> on sticks. Yeah. And that makes it tight. And then. The box, is it, is it a small box or a big box? It's both, isn't it? It just fits really well. And piling the ceremonial, putting the ceremonial drive in the basement, or like on the ground floor, is kind of interesting, isn't it? I also like the move of being able to see in panoramic detail the car pulling up from the inside. The guests are arriving, and yeah. you just see the car driving around this glass wall, and then they're delivered. And then you still see them as you back up the ramp into the inside of the box. There's something interesting about the way in which you look out from it into the parkland as well isn't there because it's a little bit looking like looking out of a a train or looking out of a yeah he's taken the th- you know the um little thing at the end of the sort of little pergola or whatever it is at the end of um Lac, one box view you can see everything but it's framed at various moments both by just the strip window yeah. and up on the roof and there are various cutouts where you can still see through maybe a sort of classic way of relating a house in the country to its surroundings which is to make these quite literal connections between the inside and the outside. You can literally kind of open up and welcome the parkland in. But here, actually, you have to go into the interior and then down into this sort of shadowy space and then kind of come out and then cross over this sort of driveway. So there is quite a separation. Although you're very close in terms of you're always looking at it, you're surrounded by views of it. You're always over. Yeah, but you, yeah, it's like you're in a little airship or something. You know, um, the most decadent of rooms, the sort of sweetbreads tower on the top of your 
hunting lodge where you go up and have windows on all four sides that need little yeah little 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 delicate bits of animals they didn't know they had um it's got a bit of that illuminated on all sides but very separated the grounds are now rather more enclosed because it was only not demolished because it had so much of them that all development could take place on other bits of the site but um it still has a pretty big garden I mean, I don't really even know how particularly how to sort of sign up, like how to sum up its its sort of centrality or its iconicity. And maybe it's better not to. I think it's nice just to talk about it as a building. A way in which it is central is that this is the peak and the end yeah. of this whole style of architecture, not just for his villas, but in everything. Yeah. It wouldn't go away. It would be digested digested, broken down, and recombined. None of these changes and developments go away. He's now a mature architect. Back in earlier episodes, he's trying things for the first time, and they're often a bit gawky and one-dimensional in the the insight. Now the sauce has got a lot of ingredients, and they're only going to grow. We've got quite a mature style, and he's playing with things on a lot of levels because he's got stuff he can just bring out immediately as well. But he's going to go off into another world. He's going to search for the big building. Rich people's houses is no longer good enough for him. And the challenges of the big building are a whole new set of challenges. He's tried to do some five points medium-sized buildings. That's the first Salvation Army project, which is sort of like one of these, in a way. I mean, it's a five points building. But... It's not the literal five points, it's the sort of phenomenal five points that will keep marching on. It's these ideas of composition, hierarchy, spatial relationship. It's not, what on earth am I going to do with these columns? He's going to accept that sometimes walls are okay. Right, well, let's leave him there. Thanks um, for sticking with us. If you've been working your way through the Le Corbusier series, you've done well to get this far. Yeah. All right. Thank thank you for all your patience. Yeah. Bye.